Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc at isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. So we're going to unpack, really, for the next six weeks, who is Jesus and, and why Jesus really cannot be erased from history. Jesus is the most influential man in human history. Even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, even though you don't submit and align up your life to the, the teachings of Jesus, it's undeniable, just from a historical standpoint, that Jesus is the person who has had the most impact on human history by far. And it, honestly, it's shocking. It, it kind of doesn't make sense because Jesus never led an army into battle. He never served a political office. He never ruled a nation. He came from a small town, a poor family, never had kids, never owned a home, never wrote a book. He had a ministry that lasted three years, and the leaders of his own religion thought he was a heretic. And yet somehow, this man has influenced art, literature, science, and religion more than anybody in human history. Did you know that 75% of the people on this planet know at least some details about Jesus? What do we do with that? Jesus is literally the most interesting person in human history. And if we're going to learn anything about who we are as people and learn anything about culture and anything about civilization, anything about just the story of humanity, we've got to answer the question, who is this guy Jesus? And why can we not erase his influence? Why is he still so incredibly popular and influential and controversial, even though he lived 2,000 years ago? Why can't we get this guy off our mind? I think what we're going to find is that the reason we can't erase Jesus from history is because Jesus said and did some really shocking things. And this shock is what has rippled out into the large global influence that Jesus Christ has. And in this series, we're going to look at the Gospel of Mark, the first and earliest gospel that we have recorded. And we're going to look at the shocking statements of Jesus and the shocking deeds of Jesus. And we're going to see just why this man was so incredibly impactful. So that's what we're calling the sermon series for the next six weeks, Shocking 
Savior. Now we're going to jump into Mark chapter 1, and as we do that, here's what we're going to see. I think one of the reasons Jesus just can't be erased from human history is because Jesus not only met the expectations of his day, but he exceeded the expectations of his day. See, before Jesus started his ministry, there were people who were reading the Old Testament, just like you read the Old Testament. And you know, as you were walking through the Old Testament, there's a sense of hope and anticipation in the Old Testament that God would do something again for his people. That even though Israel had lost the land, the land that God promised to their forefathers, even though they lost it because they abandoned God's law, abandoned God's way, even though they had lost it, they had this sense of hope that God's going to move again. God's going to do something again. God's going to give us a hero. They called that hero Messiah. And so people were expecting someone to come. They were expecting a hero. They were expecting Messiah. And Jesus met those expectations. But he did a lot more than that. He exceeded those expectations. And that's why I think we can't erase him from history is because Jesus exceeded the expectations that were surrounding this idea of Messiah. In fact, that leads us to the big idea for today. So if you want to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. And that is this. The big idea is Jesus is the shock they saw coming. Jesus is the shock they saw coming. Now, you read that sentence, you're like, that doesn't make sense, Pastor. Right? You, you told us before in some of your sermons that you struggled in school. I think you still struggle <laughs> in school, right? Jesus, the shock they saw coming. How can you be shocked by something you see coming? Right? Well, well, think about it. The things that you've anticipated, the things that you've hoped for, the things that you have expectations about. There are times where we're expecting something to happen. We're in, a, anticipating something to happen. I mean, everything is said that the Raiders are going to win. And then, <laughs> I love you, man. I just want you to know, he's like, get off the stage, Pastor. Right? Right? But, but think about it. There, we have this anticipation. We have this expectation, right? And it, we, we put it up here. Now, we can be shocked in that either the expectation isn't met or it's exceeded. That's where the shock comes from. This is what we're going to see in Mark chapter 1. Is Mark is going to lay out for us in the very beginning that Jesus blew away the expectations that were surrounding this idea of Messiah and hero. Let me show you this. Mark chapter one, Mark chapter 1. And I think if you're a committed follower of Jesus Christ, or if you're just curious about Christianity, I believe this series is going to deepen your understanding of who Jesus is. So I'm very excited for us to jump into this. So let's just start. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. And here's what I want you to feel. You're going to feel this tension of anticipation and, and, and shock. That there's going to be this sense of like, yeah, okay, they saw Jesus coming. They, they knew he was coming. But then you're going to get this sense, it's going to be very quick in our passage, where you're going to sense like, wait a second, but Jesus is, he's unique, he's peculiar, he's not what they expected. All right, let's jump in. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark starts it this way. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. It began just as the prophet Isaiah had written. So right there, what do we see? There's some expectation, there's some anticipation a prophet spoke before. It's about 600 years before Jesus ever came. There was a prophet and he spoke. Now the two things he's actually going to quote here in verse 2 and verse 3 are actually two prophets. The prophet Malachi and the prophet Isaiah. But the majority of his quote is Isaiah. So that's why he assigns Isaiah there because that's the majority speaker. But he's saying these two prophets talked about a time when God would do something for his people. 
In, in Malachi chapter 3 and in Isaiah chapter 40, that's what he's quoting here, we have these expectations that God would bring comfort to his people again. God would restore his people again. He would deliver them from their bondage. And also we see that there'd be a sense of judgment. God would vindicate his people. He would punish the guilty. There's a sense that God's going to show up. The hero is going to arrive. Right? Let, let's continue reading here. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you. And he will prepare your way. He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. Okay, we're told there's going to be a guy who's going to be kind of the, um, the first act, if you will, to this hero. He's going to come and he's going to point and say, look, this is the hero. This is the Messiah. So we see that sense of anticipa- anticipation kind of building here. God's going to show up. Verse 4. This messenger was John the Baptist. He was in the wilderness and he preached that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. All Judea, including all the people of Israel, went out to see and to hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. His clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food he ate locusts and wild honey. Right here we're introduced to a very kind of odd character. Very strange character by the name of John the Baptist. He's got weird dress and weird food. Okay, he eats locusts and honey. He's got camel hair. Okay, that's not, that that seems really strange to us. Like who dresses like that? That would be the same response of those in first century Palestine. Like this is not their normal diet. This is not how they normally dress. He was, he's an oddball out in the wilderness talking about this idea of being baptized. Now this right here is even odd. There's been many people who have tried to figure out, well, what is John doing? What's, what's kind of the backdrop of this whole act of baptism? Because we do see some washing rituals in the Jewish culture in that time. But they're nothing like this baptism. Those rituals were self-administered rituals. They were rituals of kind of initiation. You were jumping into kind of a group. But John says, no, this symbolizes repentance. It symbolizes the forgiveness of sins. And John was the one performing kind of this this cleansing and this washing. Here's what I think he's doing. I think John is picking up an idea all the way at the beginning of the story of God in the Bible. And that's in Exodus chapter 19. Here's what happens is God made a promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Jacob's name, name was changed to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. His sons make the tribes of Israel. They're moved into Egypt and they're slaves in Egypt, but they grow in this huge, vast number. They basically become a people. It's basically moving from a man to a family to a people. And now they're a people ready to be a nation. God delivers them from Egyptian slavery, brings them to the promised land. And on that journey from slavery to promised land, he comes to them. He says, oh, I'm so excited to meet you guys. I'm so excited to be with you guys. And this is really the story of the Bible from the very beginning is God wants to be with his creation, not just over his creation. So God tells him, I'm going to meet you. I'm going to meet you on a mountain. Before I meet you, before I come to you, I want you to wash up a little bit, right? Clean up, put some lipstick on, right? Get prepared to meet your God. Before before I meet you, you need to clean up. All right, look at this, Exodus chapter 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in the thick cloud, Moses, so the people themselves can hear me when I speak with you. 
Then they will always trust you. Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And then the Lord told Moses, go down and prepare the people for my arrival. Consecrate them today and tomorrow and, I, and have them wash their clothes. Wash up before we meet up. That's what he's saying. I think this is what John the Baptist is saying. That day we've been waiting for is coming and has arrived. So we need to wash up. That's the symbol I think he's taking. Let's clean up because God is going to show up. Now here's the crazy part. And I told you there's going to be a turn, right? That, that they anticipate it, but then there's a surprise. Because this is about God himself showing up. I mean, God shows up on Mount Sinai. He lands on that mountain and speaks with thunder and lightning to his people. Like he shows up in a big way. But the Jewish expectation of the time of Jesus Christ was not that Messiah would be God. He would just be a man, be like a prophet, a great leader. No, was, no one was expecting Messiah, the hero, to be God in the flesh. But it seems like, is this what John is telling us? This whole baptism, is this the idea that God is going to arrive so clean up? I think it is. Go back to verse 2 of Mark chapter 1. Because I think it's very interesting how Mark quotes this Old Testament prophet by the name of Malachi. Let's look at Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Okay, Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. And and look at the pronoun here because it's very, very important. Okay, he says this. Look, I am sending my messenger. That would be John the Baptist. I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before, what's that word? Me. So who's showing up? God, God, God is speaking. He's going to prepare my way before me. And then it says, the Lord, then the Lord, your Lord, you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. So according to Malachi, who's coming? God is coming. But look at how Mark quotes this passage because he changes that pronoun. So Mark chapter one, verse two, look down at your Bible or you can look on the screens as well. He says this, look, I'm sending my messenger ahead of Wait a second here. Is this a grammatical error? Mark didn't have Grammarly to put the little line underneath there. He changed the pronoun. But now it doesn't sound like God is arriving. Who is this you that Mark is speaking of? Now we'll get later in our passage. We see John is preparing the way for Jesus. What is Mark telling us? God's coming, guys. He's coming, just like he came in Exodus 19, when God showed up on that mountain. Just like Malachi the prophet said, I'm going to send my messenger and I'm coming. Now Mark is saying, God is coming. And Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. The next couple things that happen in our passage make this incredibly clear to us. But this is where we start to see that shock of Jesus. Yes, they saw him coming, but in some sense, they didn't see him coming. Right, go to Mark chapter 1. We're going to jump back in to verse 7. John, John says this, John announced, someone is coming soon who is greater than I am. So much greater that I'm not even worthy to stoop down like a slave and untie the straps of his sandals. Now, this is really weird. This is, this is a, a, um, overly reverent. 
John is really giving too much. Because if John sees himself as a prophet, the prophet that was spoken of by Malachi and by Isaiah, or, how, why did he see himself in this way according, or in relation to Jesus? Like what John is saying, like I can't even stoop down and untie his sandals. Now, in the first century world, the carrying of feet was a very demeaning task and was only reserved for non-Jewish slaves. So tending to the feet would just, just be a, a, just an insult almost, especially to a Jew. And John is saying, whoever is coming, this Jesus guy who's coming, he is so much better than me, I can't even be his slave this is shocking language. Now think about it. If John, a prophet and a teacher of God, only saw Jesus as a teacher, would he say something like this? No, clearly John does not see himself equal to Jesus. He sees Jesus as significantly superior. Again, there's another hint. What is Jesus doing? He's exceeding expectations. So not only does John see him as better, but he sees him as doing a work that is even better than he could do. Right? Let's look again. We're in verse 8. John says this, I baptize with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This right here is just wild, right? For us as 21st century American Christians, like maybe this doesn't strike us as shocking as it would have stricken the first century Jews. Because what Jesus or John is saying, Jesus or this one who is coming is going to do a work that only God can do. Because nobody in the Old Testament could just dispense the Holy Spirit. That was only a divine prerogative. No one could pull the Spirit and move him in that direction. Nobody could do that. But John is saying, not only is this guy better than me, I can't even be his slave. He's going to do a work that we've never seen before. No one has ever done this, even the great Moses, even the one who prepared the people to meet God on the mountain, the mountain of Sinai, even the one who delivered the people out of Egypt, who basically broke the world power of the day, the Egyptians, God used to perform miracles. He's the one who opened the, the Red Sea and then slammed it on Pharaoh's army. I mean, God used this man in an amazing way, but not even Moses could dispense the Spirit. All right, let me show you this in Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. I think this is a significant story because it shows us just how radical this statement is by John. So what's happening is, is Moses is filling this burden. He's leading a million people from Egypt all the way to the promised land. And if you've ever been a part of a carpool, you know that's just like a that's like one of the rings of hell is just being in a minivan with children for more than 100 miles, right? Now, we don't believe in rings of hell, just to let you know. Yeah, we don't. But you know how significant, like, and the burdensome of getting people to move, right? You need, you need lunch, and everybody else wants something different. Let's do In-N-Out. I want Taco Bell. I want this. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Eat, just eat the seats. Eat the seats. We're going to be fine, right? There's that, that dynamic of, like, I can't do this. I can't do this. So Moses is feeling this burden. He's like, man, I, I cannot shoulder this anymore. I need some middle management. And God says, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to hire some people. So what I want you to do is I want you to go to the tent of meeting. We're going to have a prayer. We're going to have a prayer meeting. And so what's going to happen, I want you to bring those people, and I'm going to, I'm going to just unleash the Spirit on them. And then they're going to help you lead this large people. 
And Moses says, okay, so he puts it all together. He puts the meeting plan. He invites everybody. He sends out the outlook, reminders of all that stuff. They accept the event. Everybody's going. Almost everybody gets there to the tent of meeting, and God shows up, pours out his spirit. But two guys don't even show up. They had COVID, or they faked it, right? They're trying to Skype in. I don't know what it was back then. But two guys are not even there at the meeting. And you know what happens? Holy Spirit falls on them too. Bam. And then Moses' intern, Joshua, says, do we got to stop these guys? Like, I just, I just feel like Joshua would be like, well, they didn't show up to the meeting. You know, I need to check their name. They didn't get a name tag or whatever, right? I just, I just envisioned him like that. He's like, Moses, we got to stop these guys. This can't just have the spirit. And look at Moses' heart here. Right? Look at how dependent he is on God unleashing the spirit, how he can't do it. This is Numbers chapter 11. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, master, make them stop. He's talking about the two guys who, who weren't at the meeting. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon them all. What is he saying? Man, I can't stop God. I can't stop those guys. God wants to throw out his spirit out there. Cool. I can't do anything. And then Moses says, you know, I wish everybody would receive his spirit. But I can't do that. What is he saying? I, this is a divine prerogative. Like, I can't do this. I can't dispense this. So think of how radical it would be for a first century Jewish person to hear, wait a second, this Jesus can just dispense the Spirit? He's going to baptize us with the Spirit? Wait a second here. God is going to do something significant. So significant, he's going to show up God in flesh, and then he's going to put God in flesh. The God-man is going to put God in man. That's what he's saying. That's what this Jesus does. Do you see how he's just, I mean, over and over again, just exceeding, exceeding, exceeding expectations. Then the last thing that happens, it just kind of caps this off in a huge way. Jesus gets baptized by John, not for the forgiveness of sins, but as the kind of start of his public ministry. Let's look at that scene and see what happens. Verse 9. One day Jesus came from Nazareth to, or in Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. As Jesus came up out of the water, he saw the heavens splitting apart. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds really, really cool. The heavens are splitting apart, and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son, and you bring me great joy. Wow. So, so Mark has said some pretty crazy stuff. John has said some pretty crazy stuff, right? Mark quotes Malachi chapter 3 that speaks about God showing up to meet his people. But then he switches the pronoun from me to you, clearly pointing to Jesus. He's very clear in the beginning, God is showing up in this man. And then John gets on the scene and says, this guy is not only so incredibly great, but he's going to do something that none of us have ever seen before. He's going to dispense the spirit on whom he wills. God has shown up in a big way. And then to culminate it all, Jesus gets baptized. He comes out of the water. The, the heavens open up. And then the two members of the other two members of the Trinity decide to show up. The Holy Spirit just descends like a dove. Don't know what that looks like. But he comes down. And then the Father says, you're my son. Wow. Right, right at the start of our gospel, 
Clearly, this man is more than anybody expected. This language of this kind of sonship language used here, we do see it, and maybe you remember reading it. We see sometimes God use son language to, to speak of angels and to mankind. But how Jesus used it was significantly different. And this is evidently clear because when, when Jesus' opponents, the religious leaders of the day, who were well-versed in the Old Testament scriptures, they knew the references of son in the Old Testament. When they hear Jesus say it, and he fills out his teaching on that, they know what Jesus is saying is something much more. In fact, they find Jesus' usage of sonship language as blasphemous. All right, let me show you this in John chapter 5. John chapter 5, John summarizes kind of the position the, the, the religious leaders had against Jesus, and the son language is part of that. Like, look at what it says in John chapter 5. So then the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, but he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what Jesus was saying. When he called God his father, and the father called him his son. This is so incredibly remarkable. Because we don't have this sense in the first century world. If you examine all the Jewish literature of the prophets and the scriptures, outside the scriptures, and kind of that period before Jesus and after the last prophet, you read all of those, those, those writings, and even during the time of Jesus, nobody thought Messiah would be God. Nobody thought that Messiah would be God in the flesh. But Mark is making that clear. God showed up, this God who can dispense the Spirit, and clearly the one who is called Son and making himself equal with God. This is crazy that Jesus would just exceed those expectations in that way. He is God with us, God in the flesh. And if that's not enough, and that's enough, if that's not enough, he puts God in us. I think about that for a moment. The God-man put God in man. God in the flesh put God in your flesh. This is crazy. The, the whole story of the Bible is that God would have communion with his people. He would be with his people and not just over his people. In the very beginning, God created this wonderful place. It was called the Garden of Eden. He wanted to walk with his creatures in the coolness of the day. What Jesus, What's being said about Jesus here is he's going to put Eden in you. Like how much more intimate can the connection be between you and your creator than him residing within you? Like I love the, the, the series the, the Chosen. If you haven't seen it, man, you should watch it. And I'll be honest, okay, I'll be totally honest. When somebody first told me about it, I was like, they're like, oh yeah, it's this new Christian. And I was like, oh no. Okay, what is it? Corny Jesus, you know, like, it's, I'm, I'm not going to watch it, right? But, you know, seasons and seasons, and then more and more people. And then I had friends, two, two friends were like, hey, we're going to be extras, you know, over here. And the, well, I'm like, well, now I have to watch it. Because it's going to be awkward when you ask me, like, hey, did you see me? Okay, it was the feeding of the 5,000. No, I didn't see you. What are you talking about? Right? But, like, finally, and it's been, it's been a long time, I'll be honest. It's been a long time since I was first nagged. I mean, talked about it. Uh, and so I was like, okay, we'll watch it. Then we watched it, and man, dude, it's so good. And you know what I really, really love about it? I love how 
Just the depiction of Jesus and the relational connection he has with his followers. Like if you've watched it, you know the level of like intimacy and empathy that Jesus has with his followers. You feel the relational depth. I mean, it's really moving. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. But what, what's being said about Jesus here is that the presence of God in you is much more than if Jesus was right beside you. I mean, imagine looking eyeball to eyeball at the Son of God, feeling the, the, the warmth of his embrace, hearing his words as he empathizes with your pain, hearing him reassure you with a soft tone. Can you imagine what that would be like to be face to face with Jesus? I mean, it makes you kind of covet, right? That sense of intimacy with our creator. Oh man, what I would give to have that kind of first century experience. But Jesus gives us something much better than that. Right? In fact, he tells us that in John chapter 16. Listen to this very interesting verse. In John chapter 16, it says, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Now stop here. Sounds like a breakup, doesn't it? (laughs) Right? It's not you, it's me. It's better for both of us if we just kind of find ourselves, right? And you all know, like, that's not really why. Tell me the real reason. Like, just tell me that you, tell me that you think my face looks awkward. I got a bump on my nose and you don't like my mom. Just tell me. You're like, wow, Paul, that was really specific. I got my heart broken. I know it's hard to imagine, but people hurt me. Okay, this sounds like Jesus' breakup with the disciples. You know, it's kind of best if we just part ways. But that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, there's kind of a sequence to my plan. And and, and we're kind of in stage three right now. And we need to move into stage four. And I know it's been great that I've been right here with you. and This has been cool. It's been fun. It's been awesome. We've shared meals together. We've related to each other. We talked to each other. I held you while you cried. We wept together. We've taken adventures together. But then Jesus says, oh, but what's next is so much better. In this passage, Jesus would call the Holy Spirit the advocate. Listen to this. He says, but in fact, it is best for you that I go away. Because if I don't, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, won't come. Now, it's not because the Holy Spirit and Jesus can't be in the same room at the same time. That's not what it's saying. It's saying there's a sequence to this plan. And we can't transition into the new part of the plan until I go and send the Spirit. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. The Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus beside you. Think about that. Think about the significance of that. God is making his temple inside of you. Your God wants to be with you. Uninterrupted fellowship with you. That's been the story from the beginning all the way to the end. And Jesus is the one who ushers that in. The God-man puts God in man. Think about how revolutionary that idea could be to your life. I mean, this truth should shatter any thoughts of defeat and self-doubt. Right? Anytime you're staring in the mirror and you say those thoughts in your head and you know them, 
They're on replay in your head at times. You know the worst words said about you are said by you. You know that truth. Right? You look in the mirror and you tell yourself, man, I'm not good enough. I can never do good. I can never be good enough. Right? This addiction is just a part of me. It's just who I am. It's in, it's in my family line. I'll never be better than my parents were. I'll just repeat the story. I'll be a further downgrade from my family tree. They were alcoholics. I'll be an alcoholic. They were depressed. They were anxious. They were sad. They were medicated. They ran away. They, they went for an escape. They overdosed. That's my life. That's my story. That's who I'm going to be. I'm never going to be more than what they were. In fact, I'll only be worse. Right? You, you look in the mirror and you say to yourself, there's no way I can do this. There's no way I can co-parent this kid. There's no way I can release that trust and send that little one I love so much to go and be with that man as he puts poison in their mind. Then I got to come back and I got to unpack that. And then I got to do my best to not only work, but also care. I got to do all those things. You look in the mirror and say, I'm just not good enough. I just can't do that. I don't know what your challenge is, right? I don't know what your doubts are. I don't know what your self-defeat is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what your shame is is and your guilt is but we all have it and we all look at the mirror and we all say those things to you and I hope when you do that this week that you see my ugly mug in that mirror saying this to you don't forget who's living in you don't forget who's living in you the Holy Spirit can transform you man to bring out new virtue to mend all your vices and to give you skills and gifts for his service. Don't you forget who lives in you. I know you see the scars and you see the warts and you see all that stuff when you look at yourself. And I'm not telling you that stuff's not there. I'm just saying the one who lives in you created the cosmos. The one who lives in you put that burning ball in the air that we spin around. The one who lives in you is the one who could speak to death and say you're done. That's who lives in you. So you kill that doubt. You kill that defeat. And watch what God does with you. Because I'll tell you right now, I know many of your stories in this room. And many of you know my story. There's no reason I should be right here. There's no reason. If you had all the paradigms and predictions and social algorithms predicting what my life would be when I was a kid, it would not be on this stage later. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be any different than what I learned and what I lived and what I saw. But God got in me. That spirit started dwelling in me and changing me. And gifting me. And that's the same thing that he does for you. So follower of Jesus Christ. If you feel pressed. And you feel burdened. And you feel overwhelmed. Friend. Don't forget who's living in you. Don't forget who Jesus is. And what he did for you. He put God inside of you. And maybe you're here. And you're not even a follower of Jesus Christ. Right? You remember you're just curious, you just came, a friend invited you, whatever it is, right? You decided to jump in online, whatever it was. And you're hearing this idea, you just, you're telling me, Paul, that God wants to be with me. God doesn't want to be with me. Paul, you don't know my shame. You don't know what I've done. 
There's no way, there's no way that God wants to be with me. Paul, you don't know my shame. Can I say this? And this may sound a little bit hard. Can I say this? You don't know my Savior. Because you know what your shame qualifies you for? Grace. And we all are qualified. We're all pre-approved for a vast amount of grace upon grace. And you don't know what he can do with your story. Because my Savior loves to change stories. Loves to change stories in a big way. And God does want to be with you. He wants to know you. And you know what it's like to be known, right? Have you ever said to yourself, man, nobody gets me. Man, nobody knows me. I mean, really, at the core of who I am, I don't think anybody truly sees me, right? And we look for that being known in other relationships and friendships and even in spouses. But you know, they'll never plumb the depths of who you are. They'll never get that close. Even on a wonderful, beautiful marriage, it won't. Why? Because there is a hollow part of you that will only be filled when God knows you fully and you feel fully known. When you're with him, that's how it started in Eden and you can't erase it. That eagerness in you to be with God will be there forever and no spouse will ever feel that. No friend will ever feel that. Nobody will ever feel that. God wants to be in you and to know you to the full depths of who you are. Man, I'm telling you what it's like to be known by your creator is freeing. And friend, that's what I want you to step into. God does want to be with you. So much in community with you. The only language we can use is that God wants to be in you. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. And that's why we can't erase Jesus. No wonder we haven't been able to extinguish this movement no matter how hard man has tried. Because it was started by the God-man who put God in all of his followers. No wonder it's expanded. Church family, let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Christ, I thank you. I thank you that you put the Spirit in us. Holy Spirit, I thank, that you, I thank you that you reside within us, that you change us and you transform us and you gift us and you, you, you give us skills to, to put in service of your plan and your agenda and your love going out. Oh, Father, I thank you for your grace and I pray for anybody who's following you, anybody in the room right now who call themselves a Christian and they're struggling with what, whatever it is. Oh, Father, I pray, Holy Spirit, I pray this week that they would just stop themselves as the cycle of negative thought just starts to bombard their mind. No, you're not good enough. No, you can't do good. All of those things, Father, I pray. Holy Spirit, I pray you bring to mind, don't forget who's living in you. Don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I can do. Oh, Father, may we live as those who have the living God inside of us. And Father, I pray for those that, that are in this room. I think of themselves, man, I, I don't know about God with me. I, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not clean enough for that. I don't make all the right choices and good choices for that. Father, I pray you just show them. Show them that you love them, that you care for them, that you want to be with them. You want, you want them to know you. Oh, Father, I just pray, will you speak to him now? If that's you in the room, 
When you're feeling that tug on your heart. You know, you've been living your life just hoping to be known. Hoping to be seen and to be heard and to be loved. And maybe you're realizing right now that it's because you have a creator who loves you. And maybe in your mind it's just starting to open up. Maybe this stuff all starts making sense. That Jesus died on the cross for your sin. And he rose again to give you hope. And to bring you near to God. If that's you in this room. I just want to help you. Just kind of maybe guide you a little bit. Hold your hand with a prayer. You could just say to God. God knows the inner thoughts of your mind. If you want to take that step towards Jesus. You can pray a very simple prayer like this. You simply say to God, God, I see, I see that you want to be with me. I can't believe you want to be with me. I see that Jesus Christ died and he rose again. I see that this God man who took my sin is the one who sends the spirit to live in me. Holy Spirit, come in me today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.